All right, if you'd please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 21, verses uh, 15 through 17. And we'll begin. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then a third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt. He was grieved because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of the Lord. No, the word of the Lord stands forever. You can be seated. Uh, back in my early 20s, um, I was coaching ball, and I was working with a freshman team at a public school named Lake Mary, a very affluent school. And uh, we'd wrapped up practice, and we had a running back named James Patrick. And uh, I could tell he was getting a little, little bit antsy because he didn't have a ride home, and he was kind of stuck, and he was just sitting there looking like a wounded puppy. And I said, all right. I said, James, jump in the truck. Let me go ahead and take you on home. He's like, no, nah, coach, I'm good, I'm good. And I get in the truck, let me take you on home. So finally he gets in, and uh, I take him home and bring him on back. And so we drive, we get there. It's one of those houses where the driveway is kind of around the side. So we park, and I say, all right, you get your gear. I'm going to go on up, and, and uh, I'm going to meet your mom and stuff. So I go on up, I, you know, I walk up the door, and I, I knock on the door, and I'm standing there waiting, and the door opens, and it's his mom, you know. And I'm kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm Coach Turner for crying out loud here. I just drove him home. I'm thinking, you know, we're going to get kind of a warm applause. I open the door, and this lady looks at me, and she, I mean, it didn't take but 0.5 seconds. She goes, I done told you people to get your thing off my property. I done told you I don't want you around here. I mean, she goes ballistic. I mean, she started blaming out cuss words I didn't even think possible. I mean, she had a Ph.D. in cuss you out ology. And I'm just sitting here, I mean, getting hammered. And I'm thinking to myself, I mean, I know I put on a few pounds. I mean, I know I'm not that easy to look at, but come on, lady, this is ridiculous. And I just drove your son home for crying out loud. And she's just rolling on me, just, I mean, just letting me, hammering me. And I'm starting to think to myself, maybe I should run. Um, so as I take, kind of begin to take a step back, I feel come flying around me, running up the steps, and he jumps in front of me and goes, Mama, Mama, he ain't a Jehovah's Witness, Mama. That's Coach Turner. <laughs> And uh, at first I thought, that's kind of weird. He's kind of stated like this. And um, all of a sudden she goes, Coach Turner. Oh, Coach Turner, we've heard a lot about you. Oh, I'm so honored to have you in my house. You come on in. We're going to talk about Jesus. I think I got some desserts. You come on in here. And we'll go in. And all of a sudden, within a second, everything had changed. Just like that. I was now part of the family because I was part of the family. See, I learned that day that it takes a little bit of truth to change everything. It takes a little bit of truth to change everything. You know, when you ever meet a little boy, and he grows up, and he's got all these dreams, and all these wonders, and all these excitements, and these things about life, and a few things go wrong, and a few things go haywire, and things don't work out quite the way you know, and then all of a sudden, he's sitting in his college room with a bunch of medicine, wondering, should he just fill it to the top and just end his story right there? Because the shame, and the guilt, and the stories that just haven't lined up are just aren't worth the fight anymore. And then somebody comes to his ailing heart and tells him one word, the story of an old Nazareth carpenter named Jesus. And it begins to heal and ail his heart. And a little bit of truth begins to change everything. Listen, as we come to John chapter 1, 21 today, 
we're going to see how a little bit of truth changed everything for Peter, and quite potentially for us as well. It's the story of Jesus' greatest follower, possibly. His main man is number two, who commits the ultimate treason, cosmic treason against the holy God. Blasphemy. It's personal. It's real. It's raw. It walks you right into two questions that I think every single person asks. There's two questions that it's going to answer this morning. The first is, listen, I, I, know everybody, I know the church tells me that Jesus loves me. I know for a long time everybody has told me that once you're in Christ, once you're a Christian, that God loves you, he forgives you, that his wrath is no longer against you, that he does not hold your sin against you, that God isn't looking up there with a bat just kind of whopping you every single time you screw up and you sin and you fail and you struggle. But is it true? I mean, it sure does seem like, as I go day by day, it seems like the guilt and the shame, and a lot of times it just seems like the reality is, is that he's not a loving father, he's a just judge just looking to pound me into the ground. And I know what the Bible teaches, and I know what you told me, but how does God really handle my sin and my failure? Because my human experience, my day-to-day life, a lot of times tells me that really God doesn't handle my sins the way the Bible says he does. That's the first question. The second question is, is what do I do? <laughs> what do I do when it seems like my struggles, my insecurities, my failures, what do I do when it seems like my sin just makes me want to quit and throw in the towel? What do I do when I feel like all the things that press me and hold me down in life, the things that I struggle with, the things that I just can't get right, the mistakes I've made, the blemishes in my past, you know, the things that all of us have in our closets, dude, you can't even tell a counselor about. What do you do when those get you to the point that you feel like I should just quit, that I should just give up, that my sin is suffocating to me, that there is no way I have a role or have a voice or have a place in this world or in God's kingdom And I'm disqualified, so I might as well hide and run and run away. You ever been there? I have. (laughs) Been there a lot. This text is a powerful text where it walks you right into an interaction of the living God with a sinner named Peter, just like you and just like me. And you're going to see how the living God literally face-to-face, flesh-to-flesh interacts with a sinner just like you and me in the worst possible sin of blasphemy of with a man who was given so much responsibility and so much and knew so much. I mean, no offense, but none of you in here had ever seen Jesus light up like a Christmas tree at the Transfiguration. How many of you had literally seen Jesus raise a dead man to life? (laughs) I mean, if you take a classic person who should have got it right, if you take a person that should have never failed to the living God, it's this guy. Now let's look, let's go ahead and dive in and let's see how Jesus handles his sin And what do we do when it seems like we should quit and give up? All right, so look at the text, verse 15. When they finished eating, Simon said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, when you read the text, it's kind of a neat text, right? There's this repetition over and over and over. Three times, says, do you love me? Yeah, you know I love you, he responds. Then he says, feed my sheep. And as you read it over and over and over, you kind of see this little bit of a wordplay, just a little bit of subtle differences on each of the exchanges, either by Jesus or by Peter. And you read it, and you start to go, oh, listen, I see little differences. I think, uh, I think I might get the secret code. What's going on in this text? He says this here, says that there. Well, in verse 15, he says, do you love me? And then he says, more than these. Now, in verse 16 and verse 17, he just says, do you love me? But in the first one, he says, do you love me what? More than these, right? So there's a subtle difference. So the question is, well, what does it mean? Why? Why would he lay out saying more than these? 
Scholars have basically said there's three possibilities. The first option is, is back in verse 3, uh, Peter says, hey guys, I'm going fishing. And what some guys have basically interpreted it is said is, listen, Peter was like, listen, I've tried this disciple thing. I've tried this apostle thing. I wasn't really good at it. I mean, I failed. I goofed up. I messed up. Not exactly for me. Um, I mean, I couldn't even tell a little girl that I believe in Jesus uh, when she confronted me. I'm out. I mean, I'm going to go make bank. I'm getting paid, suckers. I'm going to go back to being a fisherman. I'm going to make this thing work and do what I know how to do. I'm out. Um, well, as one scholar kind of said, it almost seems a little bit ridiculous that the living God who'd resurrected from the dead, that these bunch of meatheads were finally starting to figure it out, would ever say, do you love these nets more than me? In his words, it would almost seem ridiculous that Jesus would try to compare nets to him. So that one's out. The second one is they've offered that more than these is referring to the group of disciples standing around him, his brothers, his closest friends, the guys that he's been with and working with and working around. And when Jesus says, do you love me more than these? He's saying, do you love me more than your buddies? Now, if, you, if you've read the Bible at all, <laughs> you're going to realize I mean, we're not exactly talking about God's super elite or war heroes here. All right? I mean, these guys are the biggest bunch of yahoos, nitwits, meatheads that you could ever imagine uh, who are experts at failing and getting it wrong more than getting it right. And uh, one scholar rightly said the same thing, that um, if we think that Jesus is trying to compare a bunch of meatheads uh, to the living, resurrected God, that almost seems ridiculous. But then there's the third possibility. And this one seems like the most likely interpretation. Here he says, these refers to almost a bit of irony. When you go back into John 13, 37, he had just declared when Jesus had told him, you're going to betray me, Peter. You're going to fail three times. You're going to deny and walk away. And Jesus responds and says, never. I will lay down my life for you. I will never fail you. And then in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, we learn he says that even if all of these guys fall away, you know, all these other yahoos that you picked that aren't exactly as good as me, because I'm really the super disciple. I'm Pete. Get this right. Uh, even if all of these guys fall away, uh, Jesus, I'm not. I'm better than everybody else. I perform better. I'm more righteous. Do you not realize who I am? Do you not realize how passionate and bold I am? Do you not realize how religious and disciplined I am? And so what Jesus is saying to him is he's saying, Hey, Pete, now that you've failed, like I said you would, you still think you're better than all these guys around you? Peter, you still think that you love me more than all the other guys that you have judged? Peter, you still think you're so superior to all the other guys around you that are doing ministry that you think you've got it and they don't? Pete, you think you're more superior because you're, you're doing all these things. You think you love me more than all these guys around you that you think are a bunch of meatheads. You see, what Peter, Jesus is doing is he's exposing his heart. Jesus is right here exposing just how superior, how self-reliant, how self-righteous Peter really is. He's showing him the true foundation of his salvation. You see, the key is Mark 14 when Peter basically says, hey, I'm better than all these other people. They're all going to betray you, Jesus, but not me. I'll even die to defend you. And later we know he fails. What he's really saying is that he would never say publicly is, uh, is I'm better than everybody else. I'm more disciplined. I'm more religious. I'm more self-righteous. Um, I, I, really, I really am a really, really, really great product. And quite frankly, all these other guys are inferior. 
And the massive problem is what he's really saying to Jesus is, I don't really understand the gospel at all. You see, right there is a snapshot where we see Peter's heart that Jesus wasn't really his Savior. He was using Jesus. You know, Peter kind of, in all the accounts, is kind of like that, that, that school, you know, that little school suck up. You know, that kid that came around the teacher and he was always like, how can I help you, Miss Smith? You know, it did all the things right. It kind of put things back in place. And the second the teacher wasn't around, you know, they're saying things or being just a complete, you know, annoying something, da 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 you know, and it's, it's that kind of, it's that kid that you're sitting there praying that a bully rolls into town. You know, you're just up there and I pray and saying, Lord, bring me a Bubba. And Bubba rolls in. You're like, hey, you looking for someone to bully and pick on? Yeah, that kid. Right. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of who Peter was. All right. That suck up that was just using Jesus, uh, though his heart really, really didn't get it at all. And you see, truly in his heart, he looked down on others. He wasn't really loving. He wasn't gracious. He wasn't merciful. He wasn't kind. He was superior, and why? Because he was his own savior. There was a pride in his heart and an emptiness in his soul because there was a self-righteousness, a reliance on his performance that he had functionally believed made him right with God. And so because of that, he failed, and he never did get it. There's a story of a violinist up in New York. A little girl, she grew up in an family. Fan mom and dad loved her so much. I mean, she was a lot like, you know, you sports today told her how great she was her whole life. Everybody gets a trophy because everybody's wonderful and nobody can ever lose anymore. And she started growing up and they, they started getting her all the best equipment she could have. I mean, she had the top of the line violins. I mean, they were like the best of the best. She had all the best training, all the best teaching, all the greatest opportunities. I mean, they just kept cranking it into her entire life. And all of her life, they kept telling her, you are such a great violinist. You are going to be the Mozart of the violin world. You just wait. Give it time. You are going to shine like the stars. And there was only one big problem. She, was, she stunk. She was never really good at all. She never got better, no matter what they did. And one day, it drove this poor little girl to the point where she literally had a nervous breakdown. And uh, she ended up in a mental ward. Well, the pastor tells the account that he went one day to go visit, and he spent some time with the resident before he went on in. And he goes on in. And sits down and meets with her and, you know, tender and gently begins to listen to her story. And he begins to hear about her life and hear about the story of the pressure of her parents and her desire to please and her longing to want to be a great violinist, to be somebody, right? And uh, so he listened to her and he said, Don, I thought to myself when she got done, I mean, I'm a pastor, what else can I do? I, I mean, I guess I'll share the gospel with her. <laughs> so he begins to share the gospel with her. And he begins to tell her about how in Jesus she is freed from all of her shame. She is freed from every mistake and every sin she's ever created. She is pardoned that she is right with God because of the work of Jesus on her behalf. That now she no longer has the frown of God. She has the smile of a father because of Jesus. And he tells her all stuff, goes all through it, and she listens and stuff, and she gets done. And Tim says, then the remarkable part come, came. She gets done, and she looks at him, and she says, uh, Tim, that's great. <laughs> I appreciate all that. She goes, but I already believe that. I believe that Jesus loves me. I mean, I believe that I'm right with God. I believe I'm fully pardoned to my sin because of the work of Jesus. I believe that I've got nothing to stand on, that my record is a joke before God. I believe the Father loves me. Even right now, in the midst of all of this, I believe I've got the smile of God. I believe all that. But, the, but my parents are disappointed in me, and therefore I won't die. Yada, 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 yada. I believe in Jesus. But my parents are disappointed in me. 
therefore I want to die. And um, he paused for a minute, very gracious, feeling the moment at hand. And he said, uh, I'm going to say something to you, and I want you to hear me. He said, you may publicly believe in Jesus. He said, you may even tell others about the gospel. He said, you may actually show up at church, and you probably do a lot of very religious things. You've probably gone to Bible studies. Oh, yeah, I have my whole life. Yep, that's me. He said, you believe in Jesus, but he's not your God. The approval of your parents is your God. And because your parents have kept your God away from you, you want to die. Listen, that, uh, that's the snapshot of you and the snapshot of me. It's what we call idolatry. It's what we call counterfeit gods. That, see, what was going on in Peter is that though he proclaimed Jesus was the Lord, it wasn't his functional God. It wasn't who Peter was functionally trusting in as his Savior. Just like this little girl, Jesus wasn't really her God. Jesus wasn't really the one that she was functionally trusting. It was the approval of her parents. That if my parents can just be pleased with me, if my parents can just love me and like me, then I will be happy and redeemed and satisfied and free. What about you? You know, for a lot of us, it's like if I could just be in control, then I would feel free. For a lot of us, they're like, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just be respected in my job, then I'll feel like a man. I'll feel loved. I'll feel respected. For a lot of us, it's like, if I could just get others to love me and like me and adore me like they do others, then I will be free. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But and therefore. What is it in your soul that you're functionally trusting in to save you? What is it the thing at night that you dream about the most? What is it the thing that drives you to anger? What is it that drives you to bitterness? Or what is it that drives you to hide and clam? And, and What is it that causes you to go and hide inside yourself and run away? And when you figure out what that thing is, it's the same thing that that little girl figured out. But my parents are disappointed in me, therefore I want to die. It's your counterfeit God that's blocking you from the Savior. And at that moment, Jesus laid out to him and said, Pete, I'm not your God. Your performance is your God. Your self-righteousness and your religious activity makes you think this is what the Father loves about you, but it's not. It's my love for you. And then you see Jesus right here pursuing him, almost to the point of humiliation, pushing him to say, do you love me? Do you love me? You ever been there? You ever rubbed up against somebody who really loves you? You know, and I'm not talking about somebody that notices you other than your mother, right? I mean, I work with teenagers, you know, and that's all the time. Like, oh, he loves me, Coach Turner. I'm like, no, he doesn't. That's the feeling you get when somebody else likes you other than your mom. Uh, that's not love, all right? Um, I'm talking about true love. You know, the kind of love when you realize somebody is willing to suffer for you. The kind of love when you realize somebody is actually willing to alter the course of what they do in their life for you. The kind of love that you realize that somebody is willing inconvenience what they do, and they love being inconvenienced for you. You ever rubbed up against that kind of love before? It's powerful. And when you've rubbed up against that kind of love, and you've felt it, and you've, and, you've, and you've tasted it, and then when you fail, and you sin, and you struggle, and you've made massive mistakes in your life, almost to the point to where you're like, please don't, don't make me say I love you because it just hurts too much. Don't make me say I'm sorry, forgive me again. Because it's so humiliating. It just feels sticky to have to say one more time, I'm sorry. Let me just prove it. (laughs) 
Let me just earn it back. Just give me three days, and I'm telling you, we're going to be at a really good standing. You ever been there before? When you have to say I love you, and it hurts to the point where you almost feel humiliated. But see, when you realize somebody who really gets it, who really loves you like that, push you to say, say it. Say you love me. And you begin to learn, you begin to realize, it's not because they need to feel secure. It's not because they need to hear you say I love you so they can be assured. It's because they know that if you can echo those words out of your mouth, that you are going to believe that what? That they love you. And you're set free. That's what's going on right here with Peter. That Jesus is pursuing his idol of self-righteousness, his performance, everything that's inside of him that is anti-God, he is running after it and say, Peter, if you could just say it, you're going to be convinced that it's my performance, not yours. And that is why I love you, and that is why you have my smile forever. It's an incredible snapshot. It's an incredible picture. You see, what's going on is all of Peter's self-reliance has failed. All of his self-righteousness is broken. All of his internal belief of superiority is shattered. And here is Jesus convincing him to the deepest core of his existence that I love you. Not because of your performance, Pete, but only because of mine that I give you, that I credit to you by faith alone. Listen, if you've been around this church for a while, you hear about these things called the doctrine of the teaching of justification. That by God's grace, you've been pardoned of all your sin and accepted as righteous in God's sight because of his righteousness given to you. Here it is. This is a living snapshot picture of justification. If you've been around long enough, you say adoption. That by God's free grace, you entered into the full number of and received all the rights of the privileges of children of God. You are heirs to the throne. Here it is. It's a living picture of Jesus saying, I have adopted you and brought you into my family. You are mine. It's reconciliation that you, who were once alienated from God, you are apart under the wrath of a holy God who sits and stands in judgment of you and your soul, saying you are restored into a right relationship with the Father, and you have my smile forever. It's right here. If you ever wanted to see a picture when Jesus was pushed to apply the things that we teach, it's right here. And if there was ever a moment when Jesus should look at him and say, listen, can't you get this right, dude? I mean, seriously, how many times have we been over this and over and over and over again? There was ever a moment for God to bash him with a hammer for guilt and shame. If there was ever a moment for God to throw his sin at him and say, do you not get this right? How many times have we been over this, Pete? I mean, you saw me glow like a Christmas tree, dude. I mean, you saw me spit and then somebody see, can your spit do that? No, it smells. But what does it take for you to believe? No. He comes to him like a God that you can't understand. And he redeems him. Tenderly, gently, strong, with a love that you just can't grasp. And you can only imagine that moment, Peter, you know, it's like the skyscraper is beginning to come off. It's real. Father really does love me in the midst of all my sins and struggles and setbacks. So how does Jesus handle your sins and your failures? Pretty amazing. He handles them and he doesn't even flinch because of the work of Jesus to you. Now, second, what do I do? What do I do when I begin to believe that these very things make me want to quit? 
What do I do when my struggles make me believe that I just can't keep doing this anymore? What do I do when I believe my sin, my failures? What do I do when I believe my insecurities mean I don't live up to my parents' expectations? What do I do when I feel like I just can't live up to the expectations of God? What do I do when I feel like, you know what, I, I just don't have what it takes to be a parent. I can't keep going. What do you do when you feel like, you know what, I just don't have what it takes to be a husband. I can't keep going. What do you do when you feel like, I'm a failure at this job. I don't have the competency. I can't keep going. I've got to give up or go find another career. What do you do when everything begins to well and push that you want to quit and run away because it's just too deep and you're in over your head and you're disqualified? What do we do? Well, let's go back to the text. <laughs> when you read through the account, the second half of each response is, in the first one, Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then after the second time, he looks at Peter and he says, do you love me? He says, take care of my sheep. And then the third time, he says, uh, will you feed my sheep? Now, when you, when you read it, it's almost like a play on semantics, right? You're like, if I found the secret code, you know, is this like the secret code for a Christian? You know, is this like the secret code for kingdom leadership? Am I a lamb or am I a sheep? Do I want to be a lamb? Do I want to be a sheep? Do I feed or do I take care of? I mean, do I take care of the lamb? Do I feed the sheep? Do I feed, you know, why is Jesus sitting there playing with these words? You know, it almost seems like what is the mystery of the code here? Well, the reality is, is the book of John has a very unique style. He loves to add minor variations here and there. And for example, in this same chapter, in verses 5 through 13, you see the word fish. Well, in the ancient Greek, he actually uses three different words for fish. Why? No particular meaning. That's just his style. Well, to be honest, this is his style of inspired authorship. That most of the time, when you see these different nuances, it's not indicative of any real difference in the meaning of the text. The word feed in the Greek actually means a restricted activity of just feeding animals. All right? That you go out and just feed the animals. Whereas take care of actually refers to guiding and protecting the flock as well as feeding them. So the terms do have a little bit different meaning, but most agree that these are to be taken together just to form a general description of pastoral care. You know, it's like he's using a bunch of different words to try to make that whole picture of Pete, you are called to care for the church. And then you look at lambs and sheep, and well, it's almost like the same thing as fish. It's best understood to be taken together as a charge to care for all of God's flock. You know, it's kind of really easy when you move into a neighborhood to just go look for the same people like you, right? Where are the young married couples, you know? Where, uh, those ones aren't really cool. I like those ones. They're kind of fun to hang out with, you know? They got cornhole. Um, you know, or when you're, when you're a senior adult, just to hang out with your group. Or when you're a child, to just hang out with children. But what he's saying is, listen, that not only did Pete, but you have the charge to care for all of God's flock. I remember when we lived in Florida, and our little boy, I think it was three, and he would go next door to a retired senior adult couple. And the second they saw him walk into their house, their ear, I mean, just this light-up smile from ear to ear that he was coming to spend time with them. There's almost a weird sense of caring for God's flock, of the little and subtle ways that God is reminding him and us, you're charged to care. But why is Jesus saying this? Why is he saying, Pete, go feed, go take care of? He's saying this. Guess what, Pete? You still got the job. Though you think you failed to the point to where you're disqualified, I want you to realize that which you thought disqualified you has actually qualified you. Pete, you still got the job. I'm still calling you to go do what I told you you're going to do all this time that you've been with me. Your sin, your failure, your mistake hasn't cost you what you're going to do. 
You're still my man. I've got a job for you. I've got a calling for you. Pete, what you thought disqualified you, what you thought fired you, what you struggle to believe fundamentally makes you feel like a hypocrite. It makes you feel like you should give up or don't have what it takes. It actually qualifies you. Now you're qualified to actually go serve my sheep and not use my sheep. Why? When we start to get the gospel, we see that our sin begins to drive us to Jesus. You know, when you realize just, just what, how you, why you really do what you do and who you really are, you know, outside we look great. We smile. We dress up nice. We say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm struggling. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I mean, yesterday you spoke to your wife with words that you would never speak to a waiter, but, I mean, we're doing great. Yesterday you bashed your children, um, but, hey, we're doing great. Yesterday, you judged somebody in your office because of what they did. It didn't really line up with your expectations or credibility. But hey, we're, we're great. You know, when the Bible says, if you lust, you're an adulterer. Hmm. Maybe our sin runs a little bit deeper than we think. Point being... So when we start to get the gospel, we see that our sin drives us to Jesus. It draws us to repentance and to be broken so that we lean back on Jesus' righteousness and not our own. And it begins to melt the heart so that when we go and we serve and we lead and we help, we pursue and we work, it's from a heart that actually tastes mercy, a heart that tastes forgiveness. And now you can actually empathize. Now you really can be patient. Now you can really come to somebody and not look down on them as so superior, but you actually realize you're no different yourself. You're just as broken. You're just as in need of help and grace as that person that you're trying to go love. And quite frankly, your record is a joke. And if you think anything else, you don't get the gospel. And it begins to move you to become somebody that people long to come and hear about Jesus from. You see, most of us live blindly off of the up and down works of our performance and our success. Or more dangerously, a lot of us live off the performance of others. If life is going bad, we're sad and depressed. Things are awful. God is not moving. God can't be found anywhere. But if things are going good, we are great. We are happy. It's a party. And God is moving, son. Right? Uh, He's at work when things are good. Um, But what if? What if it played out like this? Someone comes to you and says, hey, how's work going? Well, I got passed up for a promotion I'm not really respected in the workplace. I think they, uh, I don't think they're real pleased with me, though I'm giving it everything I got and, and I'm working hard and working well. Well, how are you doing? Honestly, I'm struggling, but I'm doing really well. Really? Why's that? Well, there's a part of me that realized I just love the fact that Jesus gave me a job. And uh, quite frankly, I'm loving the chance to love those well that really don't love me at all. The only way you can talk like that is Jesus. Or how about this? Someone comes up to you and says, well, how's life going? You say, well, not real great. My oldest kid got suspended. They're struggling with their grades. They got kicked off the football team. They can't stand us parents. Um, They missed out on the Pharisee of the Year Award in youth group. And I really don't, I I mean, I I don't really know what else to do. And um, I just, yeah. Huh. Well, how you doing? Uh, We're struggling, but honestly, we're doing really well. Really? Why? 
Because I think for the first time that my son is starting to see that his righteousness is a joke. He's starting to see that how he really treats people is so degrading, so cruel. He's starting to see that he has nothing to cling to in this life or the next other than Jesus. And quite frankly, when it clicks, I cannot wait to see who he becomes. You see, only Jesus can talk like that. And only when we begin to believe the gospel and the gospel begins to sink into our heart that it begins to transform and free us like that. Now, let me clarify. Am I saying go sin and do all you want? Yeah, why not? Just kidding. No, I'm not saying that at all. Um, If you sin and go do all you want, you're going to be great and be a better leader, wife, and student? Nope, not at all. But what I am telling you is our inevitable struggles in the process of being renewed our inevitable struggles of learning how to die to sin and live to righteousness, they function as our teacher to live not by our performance that leads to self-righteousness and superiority and unkind and harsh, cold heart, but they function as our teacher to live by the performance of Jesus, which transforms obeying God's law into something that's not just external, but it's internal. It flows from the deep springs and not for us, but truly for His glory and for others. I want you to realize that what propels you, what compels you to keep moving forward in the roles and the things that God has called you to, it's not your performance or your efficiency. You don't keep moving forward as a mom because you're so freaking great. You don't keep moving forward as a husband because you're so selfless. You don't keep moving forward as a pastor because you're so holy. You don't keep moving forward as a coach or a teacher or an employee because you're so diligent. You just don't. You move forward... Because of the performance of Christ that has been credited to you. Because your performance is a joke. It is tainted in sin. And when you don't think it is, it's that bad. And it's even worse than you realize. The very things that make you want to give up are the things that, the very things that you think disqualify you are probably the very things that qualify you to actually be useful. I want to leave you with a story real quick. I was speaking at a college conference, and um, it was a college conference that was wrapping up. Um, kids had gone through college, and we were telling them how great they were and how wonderful they were, and everybody gets a trophy, and, and uh, we were starting to clean it up. And, and my job was to kind of come in and tell them how awful they were and how bad the next season of life was going to be, and, um, and to talk to them about this theology of vocation and calling and going to the next season of life. And one of the principles I was teaching them, I was telling them, is that you've got to understand that you have a part to play in God's story. That God has given you a role to play in this kingdom. God has given you a part to play, a role to play in this life that only you can play. That you have a role to play in God's story that only you can play and nobody else can play it. And if you don't play your part in the story, if you don't find your way, those underneath you and around you will experience incredible suffering and loss. I said, so what that means is, guess what, guys? Only you can be the dad to your sons. Nobody else. Only you, ladies, could be the mothers to your daughters. Only you can be the employee that God has put in that place at this point in time to be the image and to be the witness and to be a light of love and mercy. Only you that he's placed. So we worked through this, and one of the guys, his hand up, big old boy, about six foot one, 315 pounds, played college football, mountain of a man. He said, I don't believe it. I'm not buying what you're selling. I don't, I don't believe this at all. I said, okay. I said, well, God hates you. Um, just teasing, kind of. And uh, I said, uh, all right, what's up? Why? Why don't you believe me? Why aren't you, what's going on? He said, well, my mom was a drug addict. She was in and out. 
uh, my dad never met him. He's never around. Had a very unstable life. Had an awful life growing up. And as I got older, some men came around me that loved Jesus, became father figures to me, taught me structure, taught me discipline, taught me how to be stable, taught me about Jesus and the church. And um, they were fathers, and then they were mothers to me. I don't believe it. I said, okay. I said, uh, I said, can I have permission to ask you one question? He said, yeah, shoot. I said, okay, here's my one question. I said, over the course of your life, how many times have you laid up at night wondering what could have been with your mother and father? And it didn't take but 15 seconds, and the entire countenance of this mountain of a man began to crumble. And tears began to just roll down his cheeks. And I said, forgive me for the question, but here's what I want you to understand. Your mom and your dad can never be replaced by the church. Your mom and your dad, you were given one mom and one dad to be your mom, to be your dad. And they had a part to play because they didn't find their way and because they didn't play their part in the story. You have experienced incredible suffering and incredible loss that to this day, one question puts you on your knees in tear and agony. And I said, it's true. And I said, but the beautiful picture is, is that your life is a picture that the church really is real. That the church really is this real, living, explosive thing that when people say it's just me and Jesus, that is the greatest lie from the pit of hell. It's me and Jesus, and it's the church. Because God brought the church around you to love you, to embrace you, to enjoy you, to encourage you, to restore you, to teach you stability, to teach you discipline, to teach you about life, to teach you about the love of Christ. And they came around you and thank God that the church is real, or else you would not be sitting here right now, young man, nor would your life be on the trajectory that it is. But the bottom line reality was your mom and dad had a part to play that only they could play. And the point I say this is to you is there's going to be days when you think um, it's a joke that I do what I do. There's going to be days when you think, you know, I, I, I just fake it till I make it and I'm so tired of it. There's going to be days when you think, I can't do what God's calling me to do. There's going to be days when you think, is this ever going to get better? I don't have what it takes. Am I really qualified? Whenever those moments and those days hit, I want you to remember the gospel. That you're right, you don't. You can't keep the commandments of God. You have to believe and trust in the one that kept the commandments for you. And you're free. You're free to fail. You're free to struggle. You are free to struggle. And in the midst of your struggles, Jesus doesn't look at Peter and say, hey, guess what? You're disqualified. You're out. He looked at Peter and says, guess what? Now you're qualified. Go. Feed my sheep. You have a part to play that only you can play. And maybe you're sitting here, you're 50 or 16, you've blown your whole life, but guess what? That's the power of the gospel. One ounce of repentance and you can start this whole thing over again. And you can start to play your part and play your role. Because the reality is, is in the gospel of Jesus, you are never too far, it is never too late. You are always one moment away from belief and repenting and it's starting the process of renewal that Jesus is doing everywhere. He loves you. And he's got a job for you to do. And when you fail to do it, it's okay. You can say sorry. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And uh, more importantly, we thank you for how you love us. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for this picture of how you go and restore Peter. We thank you for how you're um, patient with us. And uh, Lord, we pray that... Uh, the gospel can become more and more real to us. We thank you for Jesus and help us to believe. 
Father, help us to, uh, to say sorry when we fail to believe and we fail to treat others kindly in the way that we love to. And then, Father, I pray in our darkest moments and darkest days that uh, you would empower, that you would speak and whisper to us how much you love us and uh, how much we still got the job. And uh, we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.